Wednesday, November 28th, 2012, episode number 27, the Football Nation Today podcast with Alex Reamer on footballnation.com. Podcast hosted by yours truly, Alex Reamer, available every Wednesday here on FootballNation.com. And for your downloading convenience in the iTunes Store, please subscribe to the Football Nation Today podcast and the other shows available on FootballNation.com in the iTunes Store if you have yet to do so. This past Monday morning, I was a guest on David Holcomb's podcast, Monday Morning Huddle, here on Football Nation Today. My segment was about the thrashing the Patriots gave the Jets on Thanksgiving night, and though... That game is six days old, the remnants of it remain, and we'll talk about the remnants of that game uh, in the first down segment momentarily, where we look at the biggest on-field NFL stories from the past week. Uh, I say two of the three of Rex Ryan, Mike Tannenbaum, and Mark Sanchez need to go in New York. We'll talk further about that in the first down segment. Also looking at the Colin Kaepernick-Alex Smith debate, that rages on. I'll tell you why Jim Harbaugh is a genius. The Steelers have looked atrocious, to say the very least, without Ben Roethlisberger. But is that a reason why Big Ben should rush back in return early this Sunday against Baltimore? We'll talk about that in the third down segment, of course. It's our big up slowdown, debating more hot stories from across the league, including that infamous play in Detroit-Houston last Thursday. Who's more to blame, the rule or Jim Schwartz for being a dope? We'll talk about that. Fourth down segment, it's the Reamer rant, looking at people who think it's sacrilege who uh, to uh, question a head coach for leaving his star player in at the end of blowout games. You know, Bill Belichick leaves Tom Brady in at the end of that Jets game. Why? Tom Coughlin leaves Eli Manning in at the end of that Giants game. Why? Is there anything to be gained by leaving your star franchise quarterback out there at the end of these blowouts? I mean, can I question that? Well, according to some, I can't. I'm just looking for attention. So we'll talk about all those sycophants in the fourth down segment, the Reamer rant. And in the second down segment, I saved this teaser for last because it's one of what I want to focus on this week. Biggest off-field NFL story, steroids in football. Cornerbacks Richard Sherman and Brandon Browner of Seattle were suspended for PEDs this week, as was Patriot linebacker Jermaine Cunningham. And I look at the double standard in terms of public perception for steroid use in football and baseball. It's there. It's quite evident. And I can't really figure out why. So we'll dissect that further in the second down segment. It's Football Nation Today, episode number 27. My name is Alex Reamer. So leading us off here in the first down segment, uh, the Steelers suck, to say, it, to say the least, without Ben Roethlisberger. And that is exactly the reason why Roethlisberger shouldn't rush back for this Sunday's game against Baltimore if he isn't close to being ready. Now, yes, the Steelers have been dreadful in their two full games without Roethlisberger, starting Byron Leftwich and Charlie Batch. Leftwich and Batch, listen to this, have thrown four interceptions, have gone a combined 70, uh, 38 for 73, for a mere 398 passing yards over the last two games. Atrocious. And frankly, the statistics don't even do 
the atrocity justice. Uh, watching those games over the past two week, weeks uh, is actually more painful than those statistics would lead on. Um, the Steelers did fumble five times last Sunday, so Batch can't be blamed solely for the eight turnovers. That's right, eight turnovers the Steelers had against the Browns. And on one interception, Mike Wallace should have held on to the football. It was a bad throw. It was behind him. But still, if you're an NFL receiver, the caliber of Wallace, ball hits your hands, you should hold on to it. But, I mean, Batch was dreadful in that game. Airmailing receivers, doing what Leftwich was doing two weeks ago, bouncing the ball five yards in front of receivers. It was terrible. Absolutely terrible. So terrible, in fact, that I will say the Steelers will not win another game this season. When Ben, if Ben, uh, with when Ben Roethlisberger is not their quarterback. There, I'll say it. The Steelers will not win without Roethlisberger this season. They will not do it. They will lose every game they play without Roethlisberger under center. And that is exactly why the Steelers shouldn't rush Roethlisberger back. They've lost two consecutive games and now stand at 6-5, and five, as do the Cincinnati Bengals. The Steelers have a big divisional game coming up on Sunday against Baltimore, their second matchup against the Ravens in three weeks, except this time it's in Baltimore, where the Ravens are a superior football team to what they are in the road. Then after Baltimore, the Steelers have four rather winnable games. San Diego, Dallas, Cincinnati, and they finish up with the dreadful Cleveland Browns, who only won by six points last week, even though the Steelers turned the ball over eight times. The Bengals, conversely, have a slightly more difficult road, although not by much. They play San Diego this week, then go on to play Dallas, Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, except they finish up against Baltimore, not Cincinnati. So, fairly comparable schedules going forward. But frankly, it doesn't mean anything for the Steelers if Ben Roethlisberger isn't going to play. Because the Steelers cannot win a game with Leftwich, Batch, or whomever under center. And as I said, that's why the Steelers shouldn't rush Roethlisberger back. Because another week of rest will do Ben Roethlisberger an infinite amount of good. It's not going to heal him. It's not going to make him 100% with the severity of those injuries, ribs and shoulder. Roethlisberger is not going to be 100% until the season ends. But every week of rest has to help. And if this week is pushing it, you let Roethlisberger sit out again. And you bite the bullet for another week. Because even if the Steelers lose this week against Baltimore, it doesn't matter. They're not going to win the division. They're not going to catch the Ravens. The ship sailed when they lost to Baltimore two weeks ago on that. So even if the Steelers lose this week and drop to 6-6, six and six, Roethlisberger comes back for the remaining four weeks of the season. And those are four very winnable games against San Diego. Dallas, Cincinnati with Roethlisberger is a winnable game. Cleveland is certainly a winnable game. Get Roethlisberger back for the final four weeks in better shape, in the best shape he can be in this season. You get to 10-6. and six, You make the playoffs. You survive. The worst thing that can happen to the Pittsburgh Steelers is rushing Roethlisberger back a little early this Sunday against Baltimore. In Baltimore, I might add. Ray Lewis may return for the game. The defense is all hyped up. It's a hard-hitting Ravens defense. Someone knocks out Roethlisberger, and he's out on the shelf for the, re for the remainder of the season. 
Then the Steelers have Byron Leftwich, Charlie Batch, or Brian Hoyer under center for the final four games in December. That is the absolute worst case scenario for the Steelers. If they have to bite the bullet for one more week, you do it and bite the bullet. And then run the table to go to 10-6 and six and make the playoffs. Because a win this week, if it results in Roethlisberger missing more time down the stretch, does not help you in the least. So I take the slightly less risky approach with Roethlisberger. Anything is risky with him, obviously, and he's not going to be 100% until the season ends. But another week of rest has to do him good, and you should rest Roethlisberger as long as you can. And this week is the last week you can do it and get him as ready as he can possibly be for the stretch run. You don't want to risk losing him in this big matchup against Baltimore. So I'm taking the conservative route with Roethlisberger, but I could not be happier to see that Jim Harbaugh is not taking the conservative route in regards to his quarterback position. Now, Harbaugh said he would name his starting QB for this week's game by Wednesday, so possibly by the time you're listening to the show, you will know whether Alex Smith or Colin Kaepernick will get the start for San Francisco on Sunday. Um, Harbaugh said this week that Smith has done nothing to lose the job, which is true. He hasn't. We'll read you some statistics in a moment. But it comes down to this. We talked about this a little bit last week. Colin Kaepernick gives the 49ers a better chance to win the Super Bowl than Alex Smith does. Harbaugh recognizes that, which is why Kaepernick has played the past two weeks. Smith could have returned last Sunday in New Orleans. He was cleared to. But he didn't. Why? Because Harbaugh rightfully believes Kaepernick gives the 49ers a more dynamic offense, which is what wins in today's NFL. Now, as I'm sure you heard Joe Buck mention a million times in last Sunday's telecast, the 49ers have gone 25-1 in Alex Smith's last 26 starts. 25-1. Pretty darn good. Smith this season has a completion percentage of 70 and has a QB rating of 104.1. Not too shabby. As Harbaugh said, he's done nothing to lose his job. Alex Smith is good enough to win with. But he isn't necessarily good enough to win a Super Bowl with. I think there is a ceiling with Alex Smith. And I think the 49ers hit that ceiling last season. In NFC Championship game. They are striving for excellence in the Bay Area. They are striving for a Super Bowl berth. And Harbaugh recognizes you have to possess a dynamic offensive attack to win at the highest of levels in this league. And Colin Kaepernick gives the 49ers a more dynamic offensive attack than Alex Smith does. Kaepernick threw for 231 yards last week at New Orleans and ran a read option fake to Frank Gore to score on the first San Francisco possession. So Kaepernick can throw the ball deep. He's accurate with his passes. Him and Mario Manningham seem to have a great thing working. And he can also run the ball. Unlike Smith, he adds another dimension to the San Francisco offense. I love the risk on the part of Jim Harbaugh. Smith has done nothing to lose his job. He's right. You can win with Alex Smith. The 49ers proved it last season. But can you win a Super Bowl with Alex Smith and the kind of offense you run with him? Which isn't a vanilla offense. The 49ers are right up there in terms of yards per passing attempt. But it's a more vanilla offense 
than what the Niners can run with Kaepernick in his speed, his big throwing arm, etc. I love the risk. It's a risky move, but it's a move that I think is worth taking if the Niners are to go to that next Super Bowl caliber level, which really is what it's all about. Well, the Jets are not reaching the Super Bowl anytime soon. They were thrashed by the Patriots on Thursday night, and the fans were not happy. Fireman Ed has quit. He's no longer the super fan of the New York Jets, but we're not going to spend a second on this show talking about Fireman Ed, a man in his 40s who has devoted his life to following a bunch of millionaires who wouldn't piss on him if he was on fire. That's the last we'll say about Fireman Ed. Instead, I will play you this clip of other Jets fans reacting quite poorly <laughs> at halftime <laughs> in last week's game. And I put game in quotation marks against the Patriots. Take a listen to this. You won't, <laughs> you won't regret it. This is Jets fans giving their team an earful at halftime last week. Sorry, I said we wouldn't talk about it anymore. But he said it's become too vulgar in the Meadowlands with the Jets. And he's right. Hear all that cussing and swearing. Oh, my goodness. He's right. The children. Think of the children. And I love the fact it's obvious that Tim Tebow and Mark Sanchez walk in together. Oh, that stuff is priceless. Tebow, save us. Sanchez, you bum. Oh, it's great. Great stuff. Oh, well, the game last Thursday wasn't great. I mean, really, what was more embarrassing for the Jets? Was it the swing pass to Shane Vereen? that winds up resulting in an 83-yard touchdown? Was it Mark Sanchez running directly into the ass of his offensive guard, Brandon Moore, after a broken play, fumbling the football, and then having Stephen Gregory pick it up for a touchdown? Or was it Joe McKnight on the ensuing kickoff, fumbling the, fumbling the ball, allowing Julian Edelman to pick it up for a touchdown? I mean, really, what was more embarrassing? Take your pick. My pick would be Sanchez making a beeline towards the ass of his of his left guard. <laughs> that that to me is uh that to me is the most embarrassing thing. Um, but there's a lot to choose from there. Uh, now and and after the game too, when uh, Rex Ryan was asked about that play, Sanchez making a beeline towards Brandon Moore's ass on the broken play, sliding directly into the thing. Uh, Rex Ryan, and I'm paraphrasing here, but he said, uh, well, you know, I mean, that's the first time Mark has screwed up on a handoff like that. All season. Oh, really, Rex? <laughs> He's never run into the ass of his offensive lineman before? Whoa, let's throw a party for him. That's great. But that's what it's come to with the Jets. The kind of praise they have to give Mark Sanchez is he's only run into the ass of his offensive lineman once. It's only happened once. Nothing to see here. No, no, that's only happened once. He's only run into the ass of his left guard once and fumbled the ball. That's only happened once. Don't worry, that doesn't happen every day. It just happened once. 
And that's praise for Sanchez. That he's only run into the ass of Brandon Moore and fumbled the ball once. I mean, come on. That's where we're at with the Jets. And they made it interesting for a while, the Jets did, in the AFC East. For two years, they went further in the playoffs than the Patriots did. Fact, they did. But they have to blow it up now. As I said in the opening, two of Rex Ryan, Mike Tannenbaum, and Mark Sanchez have to go. Uh, They have to make major changes. The roster has deteriorated as the defense has gotten old. And so you go back to that Vereen swing pass. Who are the guys chasing them? Bart Scott, Jeremiah Bell, and Eric Smith. Old, slow, goodbye. Uh, The team is over the cap next year, too. Tannenbaum isn't really a football guy. He's really a capologist. Yes, that's actually what his background is in. Salary cap, not necessarily football. And he's been a horrible cap manager. You can get around the NFL salary cap if you're smart. The Jets are roughly $20 million over the salary cap next season. Uh, That's their projected payroll. So obviously they haven't been smart about it. And they have more... Bitter contract negotiations to come. I bet you Darrell Rivas tries to hold out again next training camp. Um, Big changes need to be made with the Jets. The roster is, as we said last week, is unassuming. It lacks an incredible amount of depth, especially offensively. I mean, Chad Schillens. Chaz Schillens is Sanchez's number two receiver target. Jeremy Curley right now is the stalwart of the New York Jets receiving crew. Um, In terms of Rex Ryan... I wouldn't fire Ryan because the Jets talk a lot. We also talked about this last week on the show. The fact that the Jets talk a lot makes it fun to kick them while they're down. It provides us with a lot of laughs. It makes them an easy target. But it's not the reason why they're 4-7. and seven. It's not the reason why Mark Sanchez ran into the ass of his offensive lineman last week and fumbled the football. I wouldn't fire Rex Ryan because the Jets talk a lot. I would fire Rex Ryan because the quarterback has regressed over the last four years. And they don't run an offense that is built to win in this league. It's a running back th- it's a running back based offense with Sean Green and Bilal Powell as the running backs, which goes back to the roster construction by Tannenbaum, the general manager. But this kind of offense, this weak ass, scaredy cat offense, does not win in this league. It doesn't. And Rex Ryan isn't an offensive guy. He's a defensive guy. And that's also the problem. He's a coordinator, not necessarily a head coach. For Rex Ryan to be a successful head coach, he needs an offensive guru by his side. Brian Schottenheimer, Tony Sperano, maybe nice guys, but they most certainly are not offensive gurus. If Rex Ryan is to remain head coach of the Jets, he needs a 1A. He needs a guy who's his assistant head coach and really is undoubtedly in charge of the offense. That's what they need. And Schottenheimer wasn't that guy. Sperano certainly isn't that guy. They need to bring somebody in from outside. Um, You know, I'm not sure if Ryan needs to go. I think his bluster worked his first three years as coach of the Jets. I think as time has worn on, he's become a little disorganized. His message varies so greatly from week to week. It creates some distractions for his players. But again, the biggest thing with Ryan is the offense and the quarterback have regressed over the past four years. And if you're going to fire Rex Ryan, that's why you fire him. For the utter lack of progression, and in fact, the great regression of Mark Sanchez and that offense. Uh, There are a lot of theories out there in terms of where the Jets go. We'll talk about this more in the offseason, of course. But, you know, something I heard on the radio this week that I love 
as a Patriots fan, as a Patriots observer especially, is, you know, Bill Polian needs another front office job. Rumor has it he wants to get back into the game. How about Bill Polian takes over the football operations of the Jets? He's built winners in Buffalo, Carolina, and Indianapolis. He knows how to do it. He knows how to build an offense. You hire Tony Dungy as head coach. You acquire Michael Vick, who certainly will be on the market. Dungy and Vick, of course, have a great relationship. How about that? Polian, Dungy, Vick. Philip Rivers may be on the market. Do you maybe bring in Philip Rivers? North Turner will probably be fired from San Diego. Do you bring in Turner as your assistant head coach, offensive guru? I'm not sure how hot I am on that, as Rivers has actually regressed himself under Turner in San Diego, especially this season. But there's an idea as well. Turner, as a head coach, is a disaster, but his offensive schemes remain universally, uh, you know, universally lauded around the game. So the Jets can go in a lot of directions, and it's still New York. It's still an attractive place. Uh, but one thing is for certain. They need to make major changes there. Two of the three, Rex Ryan, Mike Tannenbaum, and Mark Sanchez, have to go at the end of the season. There is no doubt about that. And I'm as big a Tebow fan as anyone, but mm, Tebow's not the long-term answer there at quarterback either. Another point we learned from this past week, the NFC is tough. All right, obviously, Alex, but especially is so now. The Falcons remain 10-1. After squeaking past Tampa Bay last weekend, and they face the Saints on Thursday, but that NFC South is wrapped up. Uh, the Packers, after I said last week they were a legit contender in the NFC again, got whacked by the Giants. But their defense is still batting a lot of injuries. Charles, uh, Clay Matthews is out. Charles Woodson is out. Uh, but the NFC is especially tough now because the Giants seem to be back. After the bye week, it seemed to do wonders for them. They had a huge win and showed why they're still a favorite in the NFC. Eli Manning threw for multiple touchdown passes, connecting with Victor Cruz, Hakeem Nix. Ahmad Bradshaw looked great, and he'll get more of the load now that Andre Brown is out for this season. The defense forced turnovers. Even Corey Webster played well. Uh, the Giants remain a very complete team. They possess the ingredients to win in today's NFL. They have a defense that can force turnovers, that can generate pressure on the quarterback. They have defensive players, whether it be Yosemite or Justin Tuck, who can take over a series, who can take over a quarter. They have a quarterback in Eli Manning who can win late in games, who can throw the ball now pretty much as well as anybody. I I'd be willing to say that, especially in a big postseason game. Uh, the Giants possess all of the... All of the ingredients to win at a high level in today's NFL, they've done it over the past handful of years, and if they play like they did on Sunday against Green Bay, they look poised to continue that into this upcoming postseason. Now, quarterbacks in the league have had a fantastic year. It's all about the quarterback. We've spent a lot of time talking about the quarterbacks this week. The rookie QBs continue to impress. Robert Griffin III, has accumulated eight touchdown passes over his last two weeks, is the most dynamic and exciting player to watch in the game. And the Redskins, by the way, have a massive opportunity to establish themselves these next two weeks against the Giants and Baltimore, both games at home, by the way. Ryan Tannehill led the Dolphins to a come-from-behind victory on Sunday, which Andrew Luck has done several times per season in the Colts this season, and the Colts... Of course, bounced back to beat Buffalo last week in Indianapolis. Cheerleaders got their heads shaved in honor of head coach Chuck Pagano, which was really touching. Uh, Russell Wilson, in a losing effort in Seattle, played a great game. 
A lot of great success for quarterbacks across the league, especially rookie quarterbacks. But why? Well, as I've said before, it's easier to play quarterback now than ever before. Uh, the talent level, I don't say, is so much greater than we've ever seen before. It might be a little bit greater, but it's not that much greater. It's not exponentially greater. It's just easier to play quarterback in the NFL today. Listen to this. 12 quarterbacks have QB ratings above 90. 12. 16 quarterbacks who qualify have QB ratings above 85. 15 quarterbacks average more than 250 passing yards per game. 22 quarterbacks have completion percentages north of 60%. If you're not completing at least 60% of your passes, which ironically neither Tannehill nor Luck are doing right now, you're nobody in this league, really. So yeah, there's a lot of talented quarterback. And this is an exceptionally talented rookie quarterback class. But keep in mind, it's easier due to rule changes, the decline in defenses, etc. to play quarterback in the NFL than ever before. And the statistics that I just read you back that up. Moving on to our second down segment, taking a look at the biggest off-field NFL story from the past week. And this week it's undoubtedly steroids in football. Richard Sherman and Brandon Browner, Seattle's two starting cornerbacks, were suspended for four games this week due to positive performance-enhancing drug tests. Patriots linebacker Jermaine Cunningham was suspended for four games as well. Now, the Seahawks have a tough time without Sherman and Browner. At 6-5, they owed slight leads over Minnesota and Tampa Bay, who are also 6-5 for the final NFC playoff spot. They have a one-game lead over Washington, Dallas, and New Orleans at 5-6. But that Seattle defense is the hallmark of their team. Sherman and Brown have really developed this year. Sherman has quite an attitude about him, but I like that. It exhibits confidence, and I think confidence is very important for an elite secondary player, for an elite cornerback in this league. Uh, they're hard-hitting, they're physical. I think the Seattle defense will have a tough time replacing Sherman and Browner from an attitude perspective and also from a talent perspective. Uh, the Patriots will more, easing, will more easily replace Cunningham. You may see rookie Dante Hightower slide into a more defensive end role. Uh, veteran defensive end Trevor Scott may move up on the depth chart. Rookie Jeff, uh, Justin Francis may move up. The Patriots have a lot of depth. Bill Belichick is a master at plugging guys in. Uh, if you give Belichick extended time to plan for an injury, he'll plan around it. I mean, last week against the Jets, the Patriots were without Rob Gronkowski, without two of their best offensive linemen, Logan Mankins and Sebastian Vollmer. They were without Chandler Jones. And you didn't notice it in the least. If you give Belichick extended time in the regular season to build around injuries, the Patriots will not be effective. Will not be affected. And thus, I believe they will not be affected by this Cunningham suspension. But with Chandler Jones out, it is testing their depth a little bit at defensive end. But the big story I want to talk about here is drug use around the NFL. Now, remember, the NFL will not officially release what the players tested positive for. They don't have to officially release the test documents, and they don't. So, they can say whatever they want to say. And, of course, what everyone says, what everyone blames the positive test results on, is Adderall. Now, Brandon Browner just says his sample was switched. It was switched with somebody. He's not going the Adderall route yet. Sherman, though, 
is going the Adderall route. He says he accidentally drank a teammate's drink, which uh, that contained crushed Adderall, and that's why Sherman tested positive. Uh, Jermaine Cunningham said Adderall. That's why he tested positive. Now, players, of course, are allowed to take Adderall if they follow proper procedure, like all banned substances. If the players have a proper doctor's prescription for a substance, they can take it legally in the NFL. And of course, you can easily obtain a prescription for Adderall. Every college kid somehow does it. So, does that mean these guys are all stupid? I mean, you can so easily walk into a doctor's office and obtain a prescription for Adderall. You're going to tell me these professional athletes, their bodies are their business. Their business is their bodies, I should say. That's what they do. Take care of their bodies. Know to a T what they're putting inside of their bodies. You're going to tell me they don't have the time or the wherewithal to get a proper Adderall prescription when every college kid in the country can somehow easily do it? No, of course not. Because they're not taking Adderall. They say they're taking Adderall because it's easy for the public to identify with. You know, you hear that Richard Sherman suspended for Adderall. Jermaine Cunningham suspended for Adderall. All right, well, my kid takes Adderall so he can study for math. So, all right. They're not monsters. Just took a little Adderall. So, that's why they say it. They're not taking Adderall and testing positive for it. If you have a prescription for a substance, you won't get suspended in the NFL. And you can obtain Adderall prescriptions like that. With a snap of the fingers. Um... Now, there will be a hearing in Washington next week about whether the NFL can begin testing for HGH. The league says the testing system is valid. The players do not. Uh, and MLB, of course, they've had a long tradition, the players have, of resisting drug testing. Uh, they do now test for HGH, but not during the season. Um, now, why is that? Well, because of this. The fact is, no professional sports league has a real interest in stopping drug use. They want to police it for public relations purposes and other reasons. It's in their best interest to police it. But they don't necessarily want to stop it. You know, in baseball, for example, they let players know when the drug test is coming up. There are no surprise tests in baseball. So if you're smart about it in Major League Baseball, you can scheme out your regimen, you know, your drug-taking regimen, around the tests. Now, some guys, miraculously, you know, can't do that, Bartolo Colon, Melky Cabrera from last season, but in baseball, you know when a drug test is coming up. There are no surprise tests. The test is out there to catch not the cheaters, but the idiots, frankly. And the NFL, I'm sure, works in a similar fashion. I mean, you're going to tell me only a handful of NFL players per year take performance-enhancing drugs? Really? A handful per year? I'd say 95% of the league does. You have to. With the amount of punishment your body takes. You have to. Players over the years have become bigger. They've become faster. They've become stronger. The game's become more physical. You're playing more often. You're playing Thursday night. Then turning, you're playing Sunday night. Then turning around Thursday night. You have to. To survive in that league. And I'd say 95% or so of the guys do it. And you're to tell me only a handful of guys test positive for PEDs per year? How do you add that up? You're going to tell me no star offensive player has ever taken a performance-enhancing drug? Tell me one star offensive player who matters in Fantasy League, who's on billboards, etc., who's tested positive for steroids in the NFL. 
I can't name one. You're going to tell me no wide receiver, no tight end, no running back with the amount of punishment those guys take. Nobody, no star offensive player has taken a performance-enhancing drug. Come on. But no star offensive player has ever tested positive. Hmm. The NFL is a private institution. They can do what they want with those test results. Remember that. Now, what I also want to focus on today is the double standard in sports when it comes to steroid use among athletes. What I mean by this is, in the NFL, it's generally accepted. And by it, I mean steroid use is generally accepted. In baseball, of course, though, ah, there's mass outrage in the streets. How dare these guys ruin the sanctity of the game? Finger pointing with the best of them, you know? Shame, how dare you ruin the sanctity of baseball? But in football, it's eh. Be smarter about it. Gotta find a way to beat the system. It's easy to do it. Everyone else doesn't. Why couldn't you? Eh. We'll see you in four games. Hope the team can survive without you. It's a double standard. I read you Jerry Callahan, sports columnist for the Boston Herald, also the host of, a, uh, of the Sports Talk Radio Show Morning Show, Dennis and Callahan, on Sports Radio WEI here in Boston. Uh, Callahan writes this about Cunningham. Quote, Cunningham is gone for a month, but maybe his choice was simple. Four games or forever. Was it going to be Mike Vrabel or Sean Crable? Maybe without the PEDs, the Florida product is on the street right now. Just another SEC star who couldn't hack it in the NFL. Doesn't make it right, but he sure makes it easy to understand. Put yourself in his cleats, Callahan writes. What if you knew it would be all over? The money, the fame, the dream of NFL career. If you didn't just apply a little synthetic testosterone cream to your skin, would you have the strength to say no when some of your teammates, including emerging star linebacker Brandon Spikes, had come through their drug suspensions virtually unscathed? Absolutely right, Callahan. Oh, love it. Of course. In baseball, Melky Cabrera tested positive for steroids this year, suspended for 50 games. Cabrera prior to the past two seasons, was a borderline major leaguer. He took steroids to keep himself in the game. And what happened this offseason? He signed a two-year, $16 million contract he set for life. Melky Cabrera was met with the same choice, take steroids or likely get out of baseball. But yet, no one's writing a column like that defending Cabrera's choice. Why? Because of the double standard. Callahan continues. All drug cheats aren't the same. There are the desperate cheaters like Cunningham, who are trying to stay employed. And then there are the greedy cheaters. Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens had it all. Money. Fame. A direct route to the Baseball Hall of Fame. It wasn't enough. They wanted more. Bonds wanted all the glory that Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa were getting. Clemens was great, but he wanted to be the greatest ever. And he almost pulled it off. So now we're differentiating, you know, the uh, you know the, the the guys who you know are morally okay for using steroids, but the guys who aren't morally okay for using steroids. So now you know some guys are, are, are you know if, if you choose to cheat, if you're Jermaine Cunningham, it's fine. But if you're Barry Bonds, it's not fine. What? How does that make any sense? Um, Callian finishes. Then there's the Red Sox's David Ortiz, who was among the 104 major leaguers who reportedly tested positive in early 2003. You want to talk about greed? The wave of testing was only used by MLB to determine how many players were cheating. 
If it was under 5%, there would be no more testing. But those 104, including Ortiz and teammate Manny Ramirez, couldn't even have staying long enough to give their union brethren a free pass. Their agreed triggered random testing for the whole league. Thank you, Big Poppy. Um, excuse me, but in the 2003 spring training, David Ortiz was in the same boat as Jermaine Cunningham. Ortiz was released by the Minnesota Twins. Ortiz was almost out of baseball. Ortiz, like Cunningham, in spring training of 2003, was met with the same choice. Take performance-dancing drugs or likely get out of the game. It's the same thing. But yet, we're attempting to defend and moralize Cunningham, but not Ortiz and other baseball players. I mean, for Bonds and Clemens, it's on a different level, but it's, you know, be a great player. Or take steroids and be the greatest player. It's on a different level. But it's still a choice. And wouldn't anybody rather be the greatest? Rather than just great? Of course. What's up with this double standard? Please explain it to me. I cannot fathom it. And it came up again this week. With the steroid suspensions across the league. Final two segments of the show. These will go rather quickly. Just some quick hitters. Third down third down segment. It's the big up or slow down. I say a statement and then affirm my agreement or disagreement with that statement by saying big up or slow down. Big up or slow down, number one. The big topic here. The rule. Yes, that stupid rule. Where if a coach throws a challenge flag on a play that's automatically reviewable, the review gets taken away. Is more to blame for the Justin Forsett touchdown on Thanksgiving than Jim Schwartz is. Big up or slow down. Well, it's a stupid rule. It sucks. It makes no sense. I mean, because the coach threw the flag when he shouldn't have, you no longer care about getting the hall call right? Really? Like, neener, neener, you threw the flag when you shouldn't have. We know we got the call wrong, but now we're not going to even review it. Neener, neener, live with our bad call. I mean, come on, that's childish. So... It's a stupid rule. It's a horrible rule and should be changed this offseason. But I still say slow down. The coach Jim Schwartz is more to blame than the stupid rule. Because the coach Jim Schwartz should know the stupid rule. Especially because it happened the week before in Atlanta, Arizona on that out-of-bounds play. And you know what makes this even worse for Schwartz? He did know the rule. He said this after the game, quote, I know that we can't challenge a turnover or a scoring play, and I overreacted. That's all my fault. I overreacted in that situation, and I cost us a touchdown. Yep, you did, coach. You cost your team a touchdown. All because you wanted to be a hardo. All because you wanted to be a jerk. Oh, so you throw the flag. I know I can't do this now, but I'm just going to chew you out in front of national TV on Thanksgiving Day. Show what a hardo I am. Well... I hope you got a good mugshot there, Schwartzy. Because you being a hardo, you being a jerk, cost your team a touchdown, cost your team a game, and cost your team any chance at making the playoffs this season. Congratulations. But you're a real hardo, man. You really showed those referees on national TV. And that's partially why this rule exists. So hardos like Schwartz don't berate officials for the show. And clock manipulation is a factor as well. But really, Schwartz wanted to be a hardo. wanted to be a jerk. He wanted to show up the referees on Thanksgiving Day in front of a national TV audience. He knew the rule, and he overreacted because the adrenaline got the best of him. Well, 
Oh, your adrenaline, Schwartzy! Resulted in your team losing the game. And your team losing any chance they had in making the playoffs this season and the NFC. Your fault, coach. The rule sucks, but you suck more. The Chargers and Eagles both lost this past week. Philadelphia, in embarrassing fashion on Monday night to Carolina, several turnovers later. And the Chargers, in equally embarrassing fashion to the Ravens on Sunday, 4th and 29, and Ray Rice somehow converted it. Big up or slow down. The Chargers are in a better position than the Eagles. Now, I've been quite critical of the Chargers. I've been quite critical of the Eagles. But I say here, big up. If I had to pick one, I would say the Chargers are in a better position going forward than the Eagles. The Eagles released Jason Babin this week. Their defensive end, who had 18 sacks last season, has five and a half this season. He's going to add a great late season boost to a team that picks him up. Uh, Washington, I think, should be at the top of the list there. The Redskins need a legitimate defensive end pass rusher, someone to solidify that defense as they make their playoff push in December. And Babin, I think, would be the perfect pickup for them. Um, the Eagles also deactivated Deshaun Jackson. So the shakeup is beginning the best they can begin it while the season is still going on. But that whole team needs a massive shakeup. There's no doubt about it. And the Chargers have been battling the shakeup of their own. North Turner has to go. 4th and 29, really? I mean, I wondered how the Chargers were going to top one the 24 lead, a point lead to Denver earlier in the season. Well, I saw how they would top it Sunday in Baltimore. Up 10 in the fourth quarter. Ravens only had three points on the board. Fourth and 29. The best Joe Flacco can come up with is a dump off to Ray Rice, which is why the Ravens remain incredibly overrated. Uh, but still, didn't matter because you're playing the Chargers. And you were able to get a first down out of that. Um, and Philip Rivers' play has declined as well. That remains a major concern. He's still in the prime of his career. What's going on over there? I thought North Turner was an offensive guru. But... The Chargers aren't quite as dysfunctional as the Eagles. They're just poorly coached and poorly managed. They still have a nucleus there. Rivers, if he stays on. Sean Phillips is a good linebacker. They play in a weak AFC West. They have an easier, a much easier mountain to climb than the Eagles do in that tough NFC East. Both teams are messes. I wouldn't want to be either. But if I had to choose, yeah, I'd rather be San Diego. Than Philadelphia. Now a Dallas Cowboys fan. Has petitioned President Barack Obama. To remove Jerry Jones from the Cowboys. He wants Jones out. I think the President of the United States should work on that. He filed a petition to Obama this week. Pick up or slow down. Does this have legs? <laughs> ah, It's tough. Because if the government is focusing efforts on regulating drug testing policies in private institutions like they will next week with the NFL, uh, maybe not out of the possibility here. I mean, the Cowboys, after all, are America's team. But, yeah, okay. Slow down. No, doesn't have legs. But I love this story, and I just use this as a cheap example to talk about it. Because even Cowboys fans realize how harmful and terrible Joneses to their franchise. Now, they weren't embarrassed as badly as the Jets were on Thanksgiving. Because in the second half of that game, the Dallas Cowboys actually showed some life. And made it a ball game. But, again, they were shellacked in that first half. Embarrassed at home by a rookie, Robert Griffin III. 
going into their house. Cowboys are so mediocre. And they'll forever be mediocre because Jerry Jones is their owner. And no coach worth a damn wants to go work for him. And Jerry Jones doesn't know how to draft well. He doesn't know how to build depth. He doesn't know how to build a roster. And he refuses to admit it. This is the man who said he will be GM for life. Yikes. Trouble for Cowboys fans. It may take an act of God or government intervention to remove Jones from the Cowboys. And the continued mediocrity that's going on with America's team. Finishing up the show this week, it's the Reamer rant. Looking at some of these people, these sycophants, I called them earlier in the show. Blowout game. Tom Brady's still in there for the Patriots in a 30-plus point game. Eli Manning was still in there for the Giants, a 28-point game in the fourth quarter against Green Bay last Sunday night. And these sycophants tweet out and mock, you know, tweet out a mocking remarks and call up Sports Talk Radio and, and mock those who dare question the head coach of their team. You know, here in New England, if you ever mention the day after a Patriots blowout where Tom Brady was in there in the final drive for a 35-point win, if you even mention, you know, why was Brady in that game? You know, what was to be gained by having Brady out there? You know, what are you talking about? Questioning Bill Belichick? What are you, a soccer mom? You're a soccer mom. You're a wussy. You don't understand football. Play the full 60 minutes. Well, you know, in New York. You could say, yeah. Why was Eli Manning out there in the fourth quarter of that game? You know, he has a tired arm. You know, shouldn't you get him as much as, oh, what are you doing? Well, you, you play the full 60 minutes. Oh, you don't know football. Okay, I don't know football. I guess I don't know football. But I do know this. Nothing is to be gained by playing your star quarterback in the waning moments of a blood regular season game. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. And nobody here in Boston makes it the focal point of conversation after Big Patriot win. No one dedicates their whole four-hour radio show to dissecting the decision to leave Brady in there for the waning moments of the fourth quarter. Nobody is saying that Bill Belichick is a bad coach for doing it. Nobody is saying Belichick's an idiot. I'm not saying I know more about football than Belichick. I'm not saying any of that. All I'm saying is, in a 30-plus point game late in the fourth quarter in the regular season, it's wise to not play your best players. It's wise to not play Tom Brady in a 35-point game with five minutes to go in the fourth quarter. When the only goal of those defensive players out there who have been embarrassed all day long is to take out his knee or go for his head to take him out of the game. Patriots start with Ron Landry last Thursday. They ran a um, reverse to Julian Edelman and Landry knocked him out of the game. Maybe concussed him. And I said, you know, kind of asking for it. I mean, what are you doing running a reverse? You're up 30 in the third quarter. Why are you running a reverse a reverse running play? What are you doing with that trickery? Stop it. I'm not saying Bill Belichick's a bad coach. I'm not saying Tom Coughlin's a bad coach for leaving an Eli Manning on Sunday night. Not saying any of that. But I am saying there's nothing to be gained by doing that. Why? Why? What's there to be gained by leaving Brady in there? In a 35, 40-point game in the fourth quarter, what's there to be gained by it? Nothing good can come of it. I know it's far-fetched. I know it may never happen. But we've seen players get injured before at the end of these games. Man, wouldn't that be awful if a defensive player lost his mind and 
went for Brady's knees at the end of one of these games or went for his head and concussed him, wouldn't that, wouldn't that just be awful? That, that would be awful, wouldn't it? And I know it probably will never happen. It may never happen. But it, it could happen. Just the fact that it could happen should give Belichick or any other coach enough pause to maybe say, you know, I'll play my backup here. I'll play it safe. The game's already in hand. Five minutes to go in the fourth quarter. There's no need for my franchise quarterback to be out there right now. Nothing good could come of it. So why do it? You know, they say nothing good happens after 2 a.m. All right. Well, nothing good happens when you leave your quarterback in a blowout game in the waning moments of the fourth quarter. Nothing good. So why do it? Thank you for tuning in to another edition of the Football Nation Today podcast. My name, of course, is Alex Reamer. As always, feel free to participate in the program by sending me an email. Areamer at bu.edu is my email address. That's all one word, A-R-E-I-M-E-R at bu.edu. Also, feel free to hit me up on Twitter. My Twitter name is at AlexReamer1. And if you feel so inclined, leave a comment on the show page on footballnation.com. We will greatly appreciate that. Uh, So long, everybody. Thank you for listening. Hopefully you enjoyed the show. Some strong commentary. Hopefully you enjoyed your Thanksgiving and Thanksgiving weekend from last week. Enjoy the week of NFL football. We're entering the first weekend of December. Stuff's getting real across the league. And we're wrapping up the first semester of school. Hard to believe the first semester is already over. Good things on the way. Playoff football, winter break. Definitely want to stay tuned for Football Nation today, next Wednesday. So long. Talk next Wednesday. We'll wrap up and uh, analyze all the latest happenings across the NFL. So long. Talk next week.